There are multiple ways to keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast. Through our Instagram handle, the Wolf Connection Pod, and for comments and questions, send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some more. All right, Stephen and I brought in two individuals for this podcast today. So two, one we've already had on. So you guys, if you go way back, I think it's been over a year since Matt's been with us, uh, but he is a rangeland scientist. He's the owner of Shining Horizons Land Management, a research associate with the Northern Rockies Conservation Cooperative and a, an advisor for Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. He's Matt Barnes. Matt, awesome to have you back with us today. Thanks. Great to see you guys again. Yeah, you too. Yeah, it's been a while, but good to see you. And uh, a newcomer here for us, she is a senior policy professional uh, for conservation and animal welfare for 35 years. She's the campaign director of Oceanic Preservation Society and also an advisor for the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. She's Courtney Vale. Courtney, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for joining joining us on this one. Thank you. So good to be here with you guys. Thank you. Yeah. And this is, this is vitally important because we are... Those of you that listen to the podcast on the regular, our last episode, we spoke with Cassie Kamara, who discussed the media, the influences, uh, and the things that really happened with Prop 114 and the vote itself. Obviously, those of you that have been paying attention in Colorado and with the Wolf News that Prop 114 did pass in 2020, and now Colorado Parks and Wildlife have just released their first draft of the Wolf Reintroduction Plan uh, December 9th, so roughly about a month ago. So Matt and Courtney are going to be here to really dive into the details, give us really the insight of what the draft is looking like, and then I guess how this is sort of going to move forward. So again, thanks for both of you for for getting here. Courtney, I just want to get background for you because we, we've had Matt on before. Just give everyone a little insight about really how, how you've been doing this work for over three decades and, and what got you into really being a conservation animal welfare um, individual uh, coming from a science and psychology background? Well, it started early. It began as a little girl. I was four or five years old and saw the harp seals being clubbed on the ice flows of Canada on television in the early 70s. And my path was pretty much set at that moment, literally. So with those images seared in my mind, you could say I was attuned to our brutality against nature very early in my development. So I was a firm, I was firm of purpose and self-directed from that early age. I started my own Ranger Rick club in grade school. I'm not sure that if that dates me, but I think it's still around Ranger Rick. Um, and I loved every creature that slithered, crawled, prowled, swam, and I still do. And I was completely focused on advocacy for animal welfare and wildlife, including through college and my graduate work in psychology and law. That's great. And then what's just go a little bit into uh, your position at Oceanic Preservation Society and what that entails as a campaign director. So you're building the campaigns and, and sending these out to the individuals that follow Oceanic Preservation Society. What What's the, the role there for you? Well, I, I have to be pretty much an expert on a lot of issues facing the planet today. So, I, you know, what I love about campaign work and being a campaign strategist and policy strategist is that you need to be somewhat of a hybrid animal. You have to be able to call upon the science while making compelling legal, ethical, or even political arguments. Uh, so you have to use every tool in the toolbox to try to move the needle in favor of protecting nature and wildlife. 
So that's uh, essentially what I do as a campaign director for Oceanic Preservation Society, working on most of the issues you can imagine from deforestation to Ill illegal wildlife trade, to whale and dolphin hunting, to climate change. So I, it runs the gamut of, of focusing on the most critical and pressing issues facing the planet today. Do you feel that your, your schooling background, could you have a, a bachelor's in wildlife biology and then a master's in psychology? Do you feel, because you talk, spoke about the tools in the toolbox, are those some of the things that you reference over the, the 30 plus years that you've been working and, and developing these policies and, and things of that sort? Yes, I mean, I've, I've always been drawn to the social sciences because they complement bio the biological or ecological sciences where the human dimensions of wildlife give us the space and the insight to better understand human nature and decision-making, and most importantly, our attitudes and belief systems and our relationships to each other and the natural world. So, and, and how that informs policy science only gets us so far. Wildlife science can tell us what we might do, but it doesn't tell us what we should do. So science is really just part of the picture and should be, in, you know, should be considered in partnership with values and ethics. And it's, I guess, the limitations of the physical sciences, uh, sciences that we can complement with social sciences, where sometimes it's taboo for researchers to consider values and ethics for fear that normative judgments might color or threaten neutrality. Of, of the scientific studies. And this is where I find the most challenging work and the most relevancy for the other elements of, of policymaking, which necessarily involve the human element and the human dimension. Matt, just to touch on that human element. So you're, you're both part of the, the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. What is it like working with Courtney and, and how you guys are able to really use both of your expertises to push policies forward and, and be a part of something as as special and and really um, informative as this this Colorado Wolf Reintroduction Plan. Well, working with Courtney is always uh, exciting because, as you can tell, she's kind of a firebrand and and uh, that keeps things interesting. Uh, she doesn't let me just sit back and wear my scientist hat all the time and and not not uh, engage in the politics, which would would probably be my preference if I <laughs> if I could get away with it. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's great, and um, you know because in some ways we see things very similarly. We're, we're we both are trying to work in the messy middle and move things forward, um, and and we both recognize that sometimes change is incremental. Um, but then we also come at it from slightly different viewpoints that uh, that I think really complement each other. So. In speaking of, and we're just going to dive right in because there's a lot to talk about. And again, just for, I'm going to say this a couple of times throughout, and I'm sure Matt and Courtney will say too, this this plan that was released by Colorado Parks and Wildlife is strictly a draft. So this is the, really the first go at it. So we're just touching on the stuff that's that's out there right now. And we'll see, you know, we're just going to give the information to everyone out there so that they can make the informed decision. Actually, speak, speaking of that, can we start? Can we just start there in in the context of this plan? What does what does draft mean? What are they waiting for to finalize? Yeah. So, um, so this, the the way this works is uh, CPW convened a stakeholder group and a technical group to advise them on how to do this plan, um, and this is the first draft that they've produced. That's largely based on the input of those two groups, and. Um, the public has until January 22nd to make comments on it. Um, and 
the staff basically anticipates a lot of public comment and also requested changes from the Parks and Wildlife Commission that oversees the agency. And uh, hopefully they will incorporate that into um, a revised version of this plan, which they expect to finalize by April and have um, essentially uh, not quite signed into law, but adopted by the commission in, in May of 2023. So I'm interested in how this public commenting works. So the, the public sends in their concerns and then uh, what, what amount of the same comment needs to be presented for it to warrant a change or, or how does, how does public comment inevitably affect the plan? Am, am I making sense? Well, that, that's, that's yet to be seen. <laughs> that's yet to be seen. You have to understand that there's been, the stakeholder process has been happening for about a year, over mm -hmm. a year, uh, convening the, the SAG and the TWIG. We'll use the acronyms from here on in, the stakeholder advisory groups. And all along the way, public comment has been received by the commission and by Colorado Parks and Wildlife. So there have been uh, virtual opportunities for the general public to testify and give their comments and so those those two have been incorporated into that that stakeholder process the plan itself now that it's released must give time for public comment and opportunity uh, for for stakeholders to respond and hopefully we can improve those aspects of the plan that are are not satisfactory to us got it because i've seen and I'm sure I don't know if you guys saw this too. Once they they once they released the plan, and Stephen and I were both we we were checking Instagram and things like that, and it was an immediate flood of comments <laughs> that they were firing back at uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and you know they I, they seemed to handle it pretty well, uh, just because you I you you could tell it was somewhat of a contentious. It was basically fifty fifty down the middle. It was contentious for some. And people were praising them for their the way that they've approached this so far. Courtney, from your perspective, and then we'll go to Matt. How do you feel that they've been handling that just on its in a PR standpoint? Um, because again, social media can get very virulent very quickly, and they really seem to have their answers in a row and, and just sort of getting by those first you know a couple of days or even that first week of when it's first released. So when you do things by consensus, you have to be willing to make concessions. And there were many groups and individuals that on the uh, on the front end of this plan that didn't believe in the stakeholder process to begin with, uh, that it would be biased or stilted in favor of, of, of certain perspectives. And, you know, that all of that, it needs to be taken into account when looking at the balancing act that CPW must do in trying to develop a plan that serves all and to align common values and come up with a plan for reintroduction. So Rocky Mountain Wolf Project was supportive of the stakeholder process and we respect it. And because it is a process, the entire journey of receiving public input, which prompts dialogue and discussion between stakeholders, that's also part of the process that can forge collaboration, soften attitudes and inspire change all along the way and into the future, forcing us to get out of our separate corners. So. Understanding that and understanding that there are pressures from various corners uh, on CPW and the commission, uh, I think they've done a good job uh, to, as a good starting point. Uh, could the plan be better? Yes. Is it a good plan? Yes. So again, as Matt said, sometimes progress is incremental, incremental and not all at once. 
And this plan, I think, represents steps in the right direction to achieve the aims of Proposition 114 and the aims of the implementing statute, which codifies Proposition 114. Matt, for you, how did you feel the stake, uh, the stakeholder advisory group, the, the TWIG and the, and the SAG, and I'll <laughs> use the acronyms, uh, like Courtney said, just to shorten it. Well, uh, what's how did you feel that process went? And and obviously having both of you a part of this, what, what was that like for you? Uh, and how do you feel that went? Because as Courtney said, there were some groups and I guess individuals that weren't uh, were opposed to this form of, of how they went about drafting the plan. Yeah, that's a great question. So I was honored to be on the stakeholder advisory group, the SAG. Um, it's one of the most fascinating experiences of my career, actually, over the last year and a half or so. Um, so this group was 17 voting members plus three ex officio members, the, the three being essentially agency representatives. And then the other 17, uh, more or less representing uh, certain constituency groups. So several wolf advocates, uh, several ranchers, several hunters or outfitters. Um, actually, probably the majority of the group were, were hunters or outfitters in, in some way or another, because several of the wolf advocates are also hunters, including myself. Uh, so, um, but it was never really intended to represent all Coloradans, which would be impossible in a group of less than 20 people. Um, and so, that, that's been a point of contention among a bunch of the pro-wolf folks who were not SAG members over the last year and a half. Um, and, and for, which is understandable. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why this group, because it really has sort of the sort of three core groups within it. Um, and some of us overlap and have a foot in all three of those subgroups, if you will. Um, and so, the the thing about the SAG is it was organized to be a consensus group. So if there are things that wolf advocates and hunters and ranchers can all agree on, they're probably good policy. Hmm. And <laughs> that at least that's the the basic idea. But ultimately, it's going to be a compromise. Um, so groups like this only make progress through some kind of compromise. And um, and I think to folks who just saw Prop 114 pass, they didn't see any reason why they should have to compromise on anything. So, uh, which and that that is understandable. So, um, and, and there's another concern too, and, and it's for the reasons I just mentioned that stakeholder groups in general tend to empower traditional constituencies, um, and. There's some truth to that, but it, it all comes down to is it facilitated in a way that those traditional constituencies can find areas of agreement and turn those into productive policy? If so, then it's a good thing. And, and I think we really tried to do, to do that. Um, we, we actually did find things where wolf advocates, hunters, and ranchers could actually agree on some things. Uh, there are a whole lot of things we couldn't agree on. So. Um, it's really interesting, um, and I, I guess that's just how democracy works sometimes. And and I would just add that, you know, sometimes and it, sometimes perfect is the enemy of the good. And there are many positive aspects and positive statements in that plan that we needed to see and we should expect to see in the final plan and that are buried in this dense plan of nearly 300 pages with attachments. The plan itself is about 67 pages. But, 
you know, some people will see what they want to see in this plan and see only that and what serves them best. But I hope that we can welcome the positive. Um, for instance, uh, one of the basic tenets and core philosophies of that plan that was kind of a foundation of the stakeholder process is that the um, is the minimization of lethal take and building trust among communities. And I know that building trust is 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 a good outcome of of the stakeholder process, and it's one that uh, I hope that we can expect to see continue. And Rocky Mountain Wolf Project is going to hold on to that statement in the plan, believe in it, and hold CPW accountable to this as we move forward. Matt, can you just share with everyone more specifics of the process by which someone ends up a member of this SAG? Oh, yeah, excellent question and an important one. So CPW actually put out a request for people to apply to it and anyone could apply. I think probably the only actual requirement was that they did have to be a Colorado resident. Hmm. Um, and whereas the technical group's different, most of the technical group members are actually not Coloradans because they come from places that have wolves and therefore they have expertise. Um, but the stakeholder group was meant to represent Coloradans. So, and I think that they wanted a, a group of people that was in some sense balanced. Um, although balance is a really tricky word and sometimes I think it's a trap, <laughs> but, um, and, but the other thing they they really looked for is people who would be willing to try to see issues from multiple perspectives and try to find solutions and be willing to, um, at least on some level, to change their views or find compromise to eventually work move forward with something that would be agreeable, not just to themselves, but to the other stakeholders. And, and I think that was the key more than say experience with wolves, which only a few stakeholders actually could claim to have. And I, I just want to repeat something I said earlier that the, the stakeholder process forces you to see um, quote unquote, quote unquote, who you might consider the enemy, uh, another stakeholder group, see them as human beings, see them as potential partners uh, for collaborative solutions to kind of dismantle the stereotypes and to, to force an interaction that is maybe normally polarized. And all of that is part of that process. And I have to also emphasize that a basic agreement and another tenet of the process is that SAG, SAG recommendations are supposed to receive priority consideration by CPW and the commission. And where they don't in the plan is where we are focusing our attention. Um, and that's explicit in the stakeholder process. So, you know, it's it's not perfect, but again, it's it's done it's done some good. And I think it's hopefully preempting perhaps some of the hostility and venom that may be awaiting us if we can't find solutions together. Courtney, from your perspective, because this really seems to be in your wheelhouse about going to individuals or groups that oppose each other in terms of policy and drafting management or, or thing, things in, that you've done over the course of your career, what has this been like for you to be able to see how this was handled once the vote was passed and knowing that Colorado was trying to do this, at least on, on the, the front page, let's say, the right way? As a you know, because there have been comparisons to Yellowstone introduction, Idaho introduction, things of that sort, and other management plans. From where you were sitting and are still sitting, how do you think the process thus far? And and you keep saying it's bringing different people to the table and doing things like that. But from your perspective so far, how has this process gone? 
Well, again, having worked within the regulatory and government governmental agency uh, environment with Fish and Wildlife and EPA, as well as in the private and nonprofit sectors, I do have a balanced perspective regarding the difficulties of developing policies that serve all or serve many, um, but that also maintain the precautionary approach to err on the side of wildlife and the natural world. Because I do believe we need to tip the scales on the side of nature, not only because we are dependent on nature and a, a healthy planet, but because wildlife has been exploited since time immemorial and subjected to extreme abuses by humankind and, and sometimes for just for our own pleasure or our own entertainment, right? So I obviously uh, want to err on the side of wildlife and animal welfare. And when you have uh, the, the, the culture of, of, of management agencies, wildlife management agencies uh, that needs to be challenged and you have diverse interests, it's very easy to, to not only victimize, but uh, villainize uh, the, the partners uh, that are working together to ensure a hopefully a humane and, and uh, secure future for wolves in, in Colorado. I, you know, I've worked on so many uh, environmental and wildlife issues that involve human human conflict, and they they have enduring and protracted conflict. And I, having the background in working with marine mammals specifically, for instance, and in, in trying to oppose certain traditions or customs. Uh, that might be painful for a segment of society, we have to truly care about the other person on the other side of the table and their livelihood and, and their concerns. Um, and so that we can learn to speak to each other uh, and learn to find a bridge because that that's the way wildlife will be served at the end of the day, be, it, making an enemy uh, out of your opponent, if you want to call them that, or uh, someone that shares a different belief only entrenches those beliefs and uh, sometimes leads to retaliation or, um, you know, a continuation of the very activity that we don't want to see, whether it's hunting wolves or persecuting wolves or any other wildlife out there. So I, you know, I see the difficulty and the challenges from a regulatory agency perspective. And I also am able to sit on the side of the, of, of the fence as an activist and an advocate and challenge those systems that should be challenged and that should advance into more progressive uh, dimensions rather than uh, establishing the status quo. And I think the Proposition 114 most definitely was a progressive initiative that seeks more from Colorado. It seeks more from Colorado than what's happening around the borders uh, in Wyoming and Idaho and Montana uh, with the eradication of wolves. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot there uh, to, to unpack, but um, it's, it's challenging, but I think CPW has positioned itself well in dealing with the criticism that they knew was coming. There were, there's really, there were five areas and Matt, I pulled this from you and I, I think these are the main things that we were going to get into here. Um, and then actually we want to, I want to start with Courtney because you've mentioned this a couple of times then Matt, I want to get your, your take on this too, is the lethal control aspect. So you said Courtney, right off the bat so far in this draft that this is a positive thing in that. And I, I looked at the lethal control and it's really secondary to all non-lethal methods first and foremost. And that seemed to be a positive uh, that you brought up. What's some of the things that you have seen so far that have leaned you in that direction? And what are some of these non-lethal methods? Are, are they different than, say, flagery, you know, the, the, the big sound machines and things like that? Or is it really the typical non-lethal methods um, that they're trying to implement 
uh, to stay away from lethal control in terms of uh, helping wolves uh, not be killed in that situation. And so that there's a lot of questions there, but I think uh, yeah. the main question is about the conflict minimization yes. uh, within the plan and provisions for that and emphasis on that. So the conflict minimization should be the heart and soul of this plan, and it currently is not. and uh, actually might be the most disappointing part of the draft plan. Um, so the statute codifying Proposition 114 mandates that CPW assist owners of livestock in preventing and resolving conflicts between wolves and livestock. And the word prevention is prominent and significant and deliberate. And so we would expect the plan to heavily reflect prevention. And it should be the core of wolf planning, restoration and management. And it should be the core to minimize livestock conflict. And, and that mirrors the language in CPW's current wolf plan that was um, developed in 2004, which has been in place for 17 years. And I think you know, most Coloradans would expect their state wildlife agency to both protect wild animals and work to minimize conflict with domestic ones. So ideally, we would like to see uh, the use of strategies to prevent or reduce wolf livestock conflict. I don't think wolf advocates or livestock producers want to see uh, conflict and depredations. And especially those measures should be required on public lands. So we believe, and I believe, that non-lethal coexistence measures are more cost-effective and ethical than lethal strategies. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, and we can talk about some of that and, and the biology behind that as well. Um, so prevention is in there, but it's not as prominent as we would like it to be. And um, more so, prevention and, and coexistence measures are not required before compensation is paid out to producers for depredations. So it's notable, it's, it's just notable that it's, it, it receives, the compensation re receives far more attention in the plan than conflict reduction, and that imbalance should be corrected. Matt, what do you think about that? I would agree with that 100%. Um, th there's a reason why conflict prevention is mentioned explicitly in, in Prop 114, which is now state law. Uh, it's, it's mentioned before compensation, for example, um, and the the state law actually doesn't say anything about lethal control. But um, but it's it's clear that the intent is that the agency is expected to do what it can to prevent conflicts and to help landowners and livestock owners prevent conflicts. Um, so the the stakeholder group did come up with. Um, a few pages of recommendations that all 17 of those folks agreed to um, by consensus and submitted that to CPW. Uh, that section in the plan right now is really only about one page long. Um, and I, I think it really needs to be built out into a, a much more robust uh, conflict prevention plan. And um, for example, there's a lot of attention to how to how to pay compensation to livestock owners, and there needs to be at least as, that much attention paid to how to prevent those conflicts in the first place. And, and that is is really important, not just because it was the intent of Prop 114, but if you look at the five states of the Northern Rockies and compare conflict rates between Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Washington, and Oregon, there is far more conflict in Wyoming than anywhere else, and far less conflict in Washington and Oregon than in any of the other states. And that's even after you adjust it for the number of wolves in those states, because there's only about 200 wolves each in 
Washington and Oregon, 300 and some in Wyoming, and then over a thousand each in Montana and Wyoming, or excuse me, Montana and Idaho. Um, and the most likely explanation for that is that Washington and Oregon spend a lot of money preventing conflicts. Um, in fact, Washington spends about as much money on preventing conflicts as Wyoming does on compensation. Um, and in Wyoming, it's the complete reverse. They spend about 10 times as much on compensation as they do on preventing conflicts in the first place. And they have a lot more conflicts. So um, it, it's pretty clear if you just treat each of those five states as its own data point, the ones that invest in preventing conflict or that require conflict prevention prior to engaging in lethal control, for example, um, they have a lot less conflict because they've set up incentives to figure out how to prevent it from happening in the first place. And, and, and the reason that works underlying all of this is that only about one out of every five wolf packs is known to kill livestock. Um, and most of those cases, it's a one-off or something like that. But every once in a while, some wolf packs learn that it's pretty easy to do and that if you do enough of it, it gets easier and easier. And we don't want that to happen. We got to stop that. Um, and so, um, but yeah, um, in fact, the last year that the federal government compiled data across all of those states, they found that 17% of wolf packs were known to kill one or more livestock in a year. Um, and, and to me, that's really important because that means, okay, we, we need to figure out how to keep that number low and we need to figure out what tools and techniques help keep that number low and then how do we promote those and make them more easily adopted by livestock owners and managers. So, um, yeah, that, I guess that's my, I thought it was going to be my short answer. It turned into a long one. Well, if I can add to that too, I, there's really no excuse yeah. not to elaborate on the conflict minimization uh, to underpin this entire plan because it, the plan does, the draft plan does, the one positive aspect of the plan, it does speak to public and private organizations providing support for conflict minimization in, cons in consultation with CPW, pretty much addressing uh, any concerns over resourcing and adequacy of staffing and things like that by collaborating with stakeholders outside of CPW to support conflict prevention. And it's something that Rocky Mountain Wolf Project is doing and has been doing, and, and we can share more about that if we if we get there. So um, it's, it's, it's gonna require, prevention is gonna require all stakeholders, not just producers. And from our perspective, producers do have an obligation. Uh, predation is nothing new and predation is important to healthy ecosystems. And it's, it's pretty much the cost of raising prey animals <laughs> on working landscapes. So from our perspective, uh, we, we believe that producers do have an obligation to actively participate in preventing wolf depredations and, and coexistence. Well, so so hypothetically, what's going to have to happen, Courtney, or or what might happen? Just give us a a, a a scenario that might happen that would move CPW to add more language into this plan before its finalization, referring to prevention to some kind of satisfactory level. Hopefully, the preponderance and the uh, overwhelming. Uh, pressure and feedback that that we as the, <laughs> the general public uh, uh, and pointing out where the draft plan misaligns or doesn't align with uh, with SAG recommendations. So, I mean, we are somewhat at the mercy at the end of the day of what the commission, the commission, 
not just CPW, but the commission uh, decides they're responsible for in endorsing and uh, basically finalizing that, that management plan. I just wanted to add uh, that a little bit more about lethal removal uh, and lethal control if we're moving off that topic, because you know, early in the draft plan, CPW acknowledges the value of lethal removal while also indicating that they want to minimize it. But they, they look at the value of lethal removal for increasing social tolerance. And this is not fact, right? And actually this claim is highly controversial and, and not really supported by the scientific literature. Blood does not buy goodwill. And the plan later contradicts itself when it states that it's unclear whether lethal removal in situations of livestock depredations improves human tolerance for wolves. Uh, there's scientific studies that show that lethal control may actually increase illegal take or poaching of wolves. So the success of lethal control is highly specific, highly local, short term. And I think the jury's out on lethal control as an effective tool to address depredations. And in fact, the plan, the draft plan even states that. So it's it's not something that should be uh, primarily relied upon for certain. And the coexistence and prevention and non-lethal minimization techniques that are and the plan needs to be elaborated upon in the draft plan for the final. Yeah. So maybe right. this is more specifically what I was asking. What you just mentioned before that that last thought is we're, we're kind of at the whims of public comment and hoping that it's 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 taken seriously and implemented in the plan. So. Yeah. So what? Ha so a public comments are made, and then what? Ha what exactly happens? What's the process by which it's it's considered? So there's four. What is it? Four or five uh, opportunities for the public to input before February, um, and of course, you know we need to talk about the fact that if this draft plan is not. Uh, satisfactory to some groups, there will be lawsuits. I'm certain um, in areas where these groups or individuals feel that it it departs from Proposition 114 or the statute right. or from SAG and TWIG recommendations. So that's that's the, that's ultimately a lever that could, could be deployed. But as far as uh, CPW and the Commission's incorporation of the comments, um, as with any regulatory agency, we may be happy, we may be unhappy at the end of the day. This is what I'm trying to get at is like when when so when the public makes a comment, who exactly is considering the them? Okay. So the commission, the I commission uh, is is ultimately the arbiter of, of of the plan. Matt, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, uh, I mean that that's technically right. I I think the all the comments that they get are going to probably be filtered through the CPW staff who are actually writing the plan, uh, but ultimately the plan belongs to the commission. So. Uh, and legally, it, it's the commission's plan. So, okay, yeah. And I and you were right, Courtney. So there is there's five opportunities. Uh, there's hearings with public comment uh, between January nineteenth and February twenty second. We'll have that in the description for you guys to those that live in Colorado. I think one there actually is a virtual one that's happening in mid February. So, but we'll give you guys that information. And I did remember my thought before we move off into the next thing. Is there is there anything that was floated, suggested in looking at, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, either of you, Matt or Courtney, with, with money that gets moved to lethal control, isn't that taxpayer funded in part of manage, like taxpayer, taxpayer money as opposed to, like, isn't that money being used, you know, to lethally control these predators? Like, is there is there a way that that's looked at where they can say, hey, your tax dollars are being used not to prevent or to 
prevent these things. It's used to kill the wildlife that you go out and see. Has that been brought up? Is that something that's been floated? Or is that too, I don't know, too in the weeds uh, to be put in put into action there? Yeah, so the money that goes to, to do all this is the money that is in Colorado Parks and Wildlife's budget. Um, and most of that money traditionally comes from hunting and fishing revenues, but this is different. Um, the other major legal change that happened in Colorado in the last two years is that hunting and fishing revenues got walled off from wolf restoration and management. So yes, the taxpayers of Colorado are paying for wolf management, whether that means conflict prevention or compensation or lethal control or just the day-to-day -day monitoring. Um, it's being paid for by the public, the people of Colorado. Um, and I think that's important. Uh, it's a change from how agencies have long operated and it, um, it essentially puts the entire public in the driver's seat instead of just the hunting and fishing public. And, and that is, well, that's happening in a lot of different ways here. But um, for a long, long time, hunting and fishing has driven all of wildlife management politics. Uh, in Colorado, only about 5% of adult Coloradans hold big game hunting licenses in any given year. Uh, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, that number is probably about four times as much. But still, most of those people who aren't hunters support the right of other people to be hunters. Um, but they're mostly picturing hunting deer and elk, not hunting wolves and bears. Well, that's that's been a long been an issue, for instance, with APHIS and Wildlife Services, where uh, Department of Agriculture is responsible for, you know, dealing with wildlife conflict and uh, injurious wildlife, as they would call it, and has given extreme liberal license to kill and eradicate wildlife uh, across the United States. And that's taxpayers' money as well. So what the problem is, is that this system doesn't recognize other values. It, it, it needs to recognize the perspectives of, of not just producers and hunters, but there are other voices. And the ecological and economic benefits of wolves may be less obvious, but they far exceed the cost of wolves. And the absence of wolves for, for someone like me and us also presents its own conflict, that there are those of us who believe we should be compensated for a landscape without wolves. So photographers and nature enthusiasts, urban dwellers, we all have rights to the presence of wolves as inherent as the intrinsic value of wolves themselves. And, and you know, furthermore, wolves serve as a keystone role in a biodiverse landscape that provides us with clean water and clean air. And so putting a dollar figure and a dollar amount on, on psychological well-being, it's 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 nowhere in the plan. It's not even considered, right? I mean, it, it gives a passing paragraph to um, the value of wolf watching and uh, ecotourism that might attend uh, wolf restoration in Colorado. And, you know, if we look at the non-consumptive use of wildlife as an important value to Coloradans and visitors alike, it's, it's really missing from the plan. So livestock are raised on public and private lands in Colorado, which means wolves and livestock are going to overlap. But ranchers are not powerless to, they're not powerless bystanders. You know, they have the responsibility to protect livestock from predation and for stewardship of all native wildlife, which they share the landscape with. So I, you know, it's, it's the plan needs to, to step it up a bit in that regard and, and amplify the positive 
impacts of wolves, the positive ecological benefits of wolves, and the other values of other stakeholders that are, are missing in, in the draft plan. So to follow up on what you guys are saying, you know, we've all recognized that this is an unprecedented way of putting the public in the driver's seat when it comes to decisions like this. But does it feel like an honest signal or, or an honest sign of a, of a true paradigm shift from having hunters and anglers in the driver's seat to the public? Or does this feel like a, a one-off thing? Hmm. I, I hope it's a paradigm shift. I think, I think we would need to see uh, the full spectrum of values and stakeholders in the commission. The, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission, as uh, because that is uh, meant to reflect uh, the values of all Coloradans um, and all stakeholder groups. So the influence of that commission has been, I would say, stilted in the past to reflect consumptive use of wildlife. I think it's more balanced now, which is a very positive thing. So. Um, yeah, I, I think this this ballot initiative has has pushed the envelope in good ways, in positive ways. And, and how does it feel to you, Matt? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it's a sign of the changing times. Um, and I guess one of the lenses I see this whole thing through is having been trained as a wildlife biologist. And so we've now spent over a century restoring native wildlife in North America, particularly out here in the West, um, where our, our entire profession of wildlife management, and you can say the same of range and forestry, it, it's all been formed in the hangover of the frontier era. You know, and so in the whole way that you look at these issues probably is closely related to how you view the history of westward expansion and colonization in North America. I mean, if you tend to think of it as like this heroic frontier era, you probably think of, you know, granddaddy was right to shoot the last wolf, you know, that kind of a thing. But if you realize, you know, actually, this era we have so ridiculously romanticized was actually the destruction of, of the beauty and the nature of the West, you know, you see it completely differently. And, and, and of course, the, the, the other whole half of that is not only was it the destruction, it was the theft from the native people who were already here, um, whose history was essentially erased as though they hadn't been here. Um, but uh, that's the subject for a whole nother podcast, probably with somebody who can speak more wisely than I can. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, North American wildlife management, what we call the North American model of wildlife management, evolved in that context. And it was, you know, we had to reintroduce elk to Colorado. There would be no elk in Colorado today. There would be no discussion of wolf restoration if we had not already had other reintroductions before this. The thing is, progress stalled out with the game animals like the deer, the elk, the wild turkeys. And that model was really successful for those because they had... Um, clear utilitarian value to human beings. Uh, it, the animals that are kind of more like competitors with us for the prey, you know, the bears, the lions, and the wolves, obviously, we've had a little bit of a struggle getting them back because not everyone agrees that we need to. But um, and the North American model worked really well for those other species. We wouldn't be talking about wolf restoration right now if we didn't have the North American model. But it's time to move beyond that. And Prop 114 
is one way that we are moving this profession beyond that. Um, but it's not the only way. The entire Endangered Species Act actually goes beyond the North American model, if you look at it closely. The, the North American model is really all about hunting, and the principles in it are good as long as you view them as just about hunting and not about all of wildlife. So, um, yeah, so there's a bunch of ways this is changing slowly, uh, but the, the big thing is an underlying philosophical shift from seeing animals as resources to be harvested, hopefully sustainably, to seeing animals as fellow beings with consciousness that we can harvest if it makes sense to do so, because after all, we're animals too, and we happen to be predators too. Um, but we also recognize that all animals have consciousness, all animals have value, and not only the value that they have to us in the utilitarian sense. Yeah, that's very, yeah, that's that's well put by both of you. And I, I, I want to go back too, to what you guys were talking about, just economically too, I think to brush aside and not that Courtney, you were brushing aside. It was your comment of saying they were brushing it aside. If you just look at, I was just at the gym before this podcast, and there were there's a there was a group in there. They're going to Yellowstone, and they said, "Oh, just watch out! The national parks are packed." If that doesn't tell people that individuals, not just from this country but around the world, want to come to North America to see these wild places and these biodiver, you know, these places that are so rich with you know megafauna and these beautiful mountainscapes and these forests and, and all the leaves change. like this, this is a place that people should enjoy, you know, all the time. And, and it, and it brings in massive amounts of money and massive amounts of, you know, just understanding that when you get back to the place where the West was before Westward expansion, it's, it's just, it, it's an awe to see. I mean, when we went to Yellowstone two years ago, just to be able to see that, you know, when you go through and you're like, oh, there's pronghorn. Oh, there's bighorn sheep. Oh, there's wolves. Oh, there's bear. It's just you don't see this stuff all the time anywhere else around the world. So for that to be sort of brushed aside to think about not only the the, the benefit of just seeing it in person, but also economically driving it. And a lot of these places, these small little towns are driven by ecotourism. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, we know that people like to see dollar signs and that that can help. Uh, that, that can sometimes be the most compelling argument, unfortunately. But it's part of uh, the, the holistic view of what wolves mean to all Coloradans and what it yeah. can mean <laughs> to um, to to the landscape and, and to the wilderness that we're trying to hang on to weave this mosaic uh, of the landscape in Colorado that that need to be taken into account. So you can see see how this is challenging, but the economic value of, of wildlife watching and the non-consumptive non users of, of wildlife, so to speak, the photographers and the naturalists and the, the hikers and all of that, um, we need to find a way to uh, acknowledge that value in this plan and in, in wildlife management in general. I, I want to hit on something that um, is in here that, and I, I, I get a little muddy in the water with this because I, I know sometimes, and I'm strictly, I'm talking about the recovery criteria. Um, and I know I'm making a left turn here, but it's something that I want to hit before, um, we get too far along. And it, it's always, it, it's always interesting about each state, especially, you know, when you talk to my talk about Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming about what they feel, the number of wolves or the number of packs of wolves that it should be in order to say that they are recovered, they're threatened, they're 
able to be delisted and things of that sort. Um, and I'm looking at, uh, and if Matt or, or, or Courtney, whoever wants to take this first and then the other can chime in, just go over the recovery criteria and what it means. Are we looking at another state? Um, are we looking at Colorado saying that we hit the number at, say, 150 or three, let's say 300 wolves, and that's considered a successful recovery program, and therefore that's where they're going to be managed at, or is it? are those numbers manageable? Again, I understand this is a draft. I know this isn't set in stone, but where is the number trending that you both can see? Um, I guess I'll uh, start with Matt first, and then Courtney will go to you, okay? Okay, this is an excellent question, and a lot of the conflict that we see right now in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming seems to be about the number of wolves, at least on the surface. For example, if, if you saw the the film, The Trouble with Wolves, um, it's, it's expressed as a debate about how many wolves there should be. Uh, I actually think that that's a gloss over a much deeper philosophical divide about whether there should be wolves at all. Um, but um, yeah, it is important and we need to make sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of the Northern Rocky states in, in this particular issue. And, and I, I would say that the most important thing to keep in mind here is that recovery of an endangered species is really a continuum. There's no single magic number at which you can say, okay, now the job is definitely done. Um, there, there are several different ways you can estimate at what point it's safe to delist a species from the endangered species list, but that's not really the same as recovery. Um, and in Prop 114, um, Prop 114 very intentionally used the phrase self-sustaining population. That actually is a scientifically defined concept in conservation biology. Um, and it, it means not just that there are enough wolves to prevent extinction. It means that there are enough wolves that they are resilient across their range. It means that they are um, genetically healthy and robust, uh, that there's connectivity between subpopulations. It's, it's much more complex than just a number. And so the, the current numbers uh, in the draft are to uh, downlist from endangered to threatened at the state level, not the federal level, when at about 50 wolves and then delist them at 150 wolves for a couple of years or 200 wolves at any time. Uh, th those numbers are pretty low. Um, now, if there's 200 wolves in the state and people are not killing them, yeah, that's enough to prevent them from going extinct again. Uh, but if there's 200 wolves in the state and people are actively killing them, it's a different story. So it really depends on what happens after delisting um, because we know that delisting isn't when the job is done, but that was the source of a lot of the conflict in the Northern Rocky States is they thought that, well, once wolves are delisted, that's all there should ever be. And so, um, as it's been put very many times, the, the federal floor became the state ceiling. Um, and, and that conflict has persisted forever and ever. So in Colorado, one of the big things we need to do is emphasize that recovery is really a continuum. Um, and that delisting is not the same as total success. Um, so in the long run, uh, Prop 114 defined wolves as a non-game species. 
and existing state law states that uh, non-game species will be managed to the optimum carrying capacity of the habitat. Um, now, of course, when we don't have any wolves yet in Colorado, or very few, we don't really know what the carrying capacity is. It's been right. modeled scientifically, and the, most of the estimates for how many wolves could live in Colorado fall between 750 on the low end to about 1,500 on the high end. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty because we all know that human tolerance is going to be the limiting factor. And that's the hardest thing to model. Uh, it's a lot easier to model, you know, the physical habitat or the prey base, things like that. If it were only about the prey base, I mean, Colorado has almost as many elk as Montana and Idaho combined. If that were, if that was all that mattered, Colorado could, there would be room for thousands of wolves in Colorado, but we know that's not how it really works. It, so, so it's difficult to model human tolerance, but we think at a minimum carrying capacity somewhere around at least 750 wolves and probably over a thousand. Maybe the best estimate was done by a bunch of scientists um, led by Carlos Carroll, um, probably more than 20 years ago now, and they came up with about maybe 1300. But in the long run, only the wolves are going to tell us how many wolves can fit in Colorado. And that's going to be determined by the amount of conflict. Um, and that, that's why conflict prevention is so important. So to me, conflict prevention, um, how we're going to coexist with wolves that's closely related to things not only like lethal control, but to delisting criteria. Um, so yeah, uh, I think it would be better if the the number for removing them from the state endangered list were higher. Um, but um, the more important thing is what comes after delisting. So um, if endangered and threatened are phase one and phase two respectively, and then phase three is no longer endangered or threatened, but still non-game, um, our intent with Prop 114 is that phase three essentially lasts until carrying capacity is reached. And, um, and we don't exactly know what that is, but the main thing is that um, even after those numbers are reached, we don't expect to see a lot of wolves getting killed. And we would like to see that a little bit more clearly reflected in the plan. I mean, Matt said uh, a lot of great things that I agree with. So, I mean, Colorado holds over 12 million acres of suitable wolf habitat just on the Western Slope alone and a massive prey base of elk, over 300,000 elk, uh, more than any other state in the union. And, um, and other smaller wildlife that can easily support the return of multiple populations to the Southern Rockies. So I think the, the primary problem without specifying numbers, except that they need to be upwards, they need to up uh, the, downlist, uh, the downlisting criteria, is that these numbers represented in the plan um, are based on minimum numbers, which means those minimum numbers will serve as guidelines to manage downwards. At least that is how the public sees it, and that's how these numbers are being used in surrounding states in Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, where they are, uh, you know, working really diligently to eradicate wolf populations in those states down to a minimum number and a recovery threshold of about 150, 150 wolves. So that, that's my primary concern and our concern at that those numbers, those minimum numbers uh, probably don't even represent social tolerance either and are not completely based in science. Rather, they're based in a range of experiences, lessons learned from other range reduction efforts and understanding those that, you know, the Northern Rocky Mountain population was founded by more, by more than 30 to 50 
wolves, right? They, nearly 100 wolves with connectivity to Canada, which helped to establish those populations. And for all intents and purposes, uh, Colorado should be treated like an island because you have Mexican wolves in the south that are restricted artificially. Uh, they can't roam north of I-40 in Arizona and, 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 and New Mexico. And then the surrounding states, again, uh, wolves are lucky if they're going to be able to uh, make it into the state and natural recruitment really is going to be difficult for, for Colorado based on the, the policies of the surrounding states. So um, those numbers, we need to see those numbers higher. I have two questions about both of your last statements, but I'll start with Matt and then go to Courtney. Matt, you mentioned part of the definition of recovery having to do with sustainability throughout their their range in quotations as it's determined over time. But is the range defined specifically in the draft if you were to circle it on a map? That, that's a good question. The plan doesn't say where wolves will and won't be. It, it does say that wolves will be allowed to exist anywhere that they find habitat and don't cause problems. Um, and that's that's the concept that's actually been state policy since the 2004 plan, um, but um, it's never really been enacted, so to speak, because wolves haven't made it on their own from Wyoming in significant numbers to establish a population. So um, now, have, having said that, we don't expect wolves to establish in downtown Denver or out on the Eastern Plains where there's no natural prey base for them. Um, so we expect them to essentially live where their primary prey, which is mostly elk live. Um, and that's the mountainous Western half of Colorado. Um, Prop 114 did specify reintroduction west of the continental divide. We totally expect wolves to spread out east of the divide and to all corners of the state and beyond eventually. Um, but um, what's missing from the criteria right now is any geographic measurement of success. So um, those 200 wolves could be anywhere in the state. Um, and if, if you look at Washington, yeah. Oregon, um, or the Mexican wolf program in Arizona and New Mexico, uh, 200 wolves can actually fit in a smaller area than one might think. So Washington and Oregon each have about 200 wolves in, in just the eastern one-third of those two states. Um, and if if we had 200 wolves and they all lived in the northwestern corner of the state, we, we wouldn't really consider that successful. Uh, that, that would be a, a giant leap forward from where we are right now, but it, we wouldn't be done yet. Um, and so what we would like to see is, in addition to what's in the plan now, um, some measurement of geographic um, connectivity across Western Colorado. Um, so for example, um, a couple of us on the stakeholder group proposed that there could be wolf units drawn on a map and that they could be um, based on existing elk units that the state already uses. Um, and and they would all be in the mountains so we would not you know we would ignore the the eastern plains for example where we don't expect wolves to establish uh, but we would want all the core chunks of potential habitat that have significant prey base in western colorado uh, to be occupied by at least some wolves before we delist them 
Okay, so the range is technically the whole state, but when considering success, there'll be certain areas that they won't hold as much weight as the the optimal Populated. areas, which I assume are the western slope. Yeah, yeah, that's that's essentially right. I mean, historically, all of Colorado was wolf habitat and elk habitat, um, but um, and, and until there's meaningful restoration of the prey species out on the eastern plains, which probably won't be in our lifetime. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to to actively pursue wolf restoration there. Okay, and you both mentioned, uh, well, Courtney, men- no, you both mentioned, uh, but the, I'll ask Courtney this one. Uh, you both mentioned about carrying capacity is, is, is essentially limited by human tolerance, but we don't know what that is really yet. But, but don't we, I mean, does, does the voting from the public not help us to sort of map that out, by, specifically by location? For social tolerance? Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Yes, I mean, assuming that the way a person votes is reflective of tolerance, because it's it's, it gets very complex. Because uh, some studies by CSU post vote uh, indicated that you know before before uh, the vote, up to eighty percent of the public said that they were going to vote for Proposition One Fourteen. After the vote, it was clear that that didn't happen. It was a very slim margin. So there's a lot of factors that go into a person's uh, response when they check a survey uh, or uh, or ask a question, right? right? So um, I I would argue as a social scientist that you can gauge a social tolerance through a a number of a variety of different ways. But And there are folks uh, in Colorado that are doing that. Um, But at the end of the day, um, you know, the public is going to either tolerate or not tolerate predators, right? We we know this with bears and and other predators, and and some of the mountain towns that are having to devise really unique programs to to try to coexist. And um, all of all of that work, that hard work, is before us, which is why it's so important, uh, from my perspective, to to build the bridges now, uh, preemptively and proactively with outreach to producers, outreach to the hunting community. Uh, and of course, CPW has to do that. They're charged with doing that. But I I implore all of us to do that. It's it's all of our jobs to do that for the wolves. Uh, it, it, it does not benefit the wolves to, to, as I said, stay in our corner, um, you know, uh, view, view through your binoculars the enemy on the other side of the line and continue to polarize the debate because uh, the wolves are coming and we need to find ways to to work together to coexist. What you're saying makes total sense that the vote itself may, maybe not be enough because there's a lot of nuances in voting, but also tolerance could e- very easily change once wolves are in our in in the backyards of these folks. I mean, it could go either way, right? People who voted for it could become intolerant, and people who were intolerant could decide, oh, this is actually isn't so bad. We can totally coexist, and tolerance can change. That's right. And I mean, you know, even nature enthusiasts have questions about wolves and interaction with dogs and hiking. And, you know, we're getting we're getting a lot of yes, uh, getting a lot of questions and a lot of misinformation is being put out there and a lack of information is being put out there about wolves. And, you know, that's part of what we're doing, uh, that outreach. I want to touch on this last thing, because I think it does tie into this social tolerance thing. And, And I know there is and I know this hasn't really been discussed. I, I know it's sort of in there as like a phase four, and this is, you know, well past, hopefully what Matt was talking about with the sustainable recovery population is public hunting. And we see public hunting of wolves specifically. And we've seen this, obviously, how this has taken hold in Wyoming and in Montana and Idaho and all these other things is, is the hunting of wolves. Because right now, 
they're the law the state law defines them as a non-game species is this something that is not being talked about in the near term and is something that it, like is it going to be in the plan eventually and is this sort of a game changer for certain groups of maybe outfitters and hunters that ultimately maybe and again i'm not proposing this i'm just saying that you know five ten years down the line when the population is mm-hmm. x they have an opportunity to hunt them for like you see in montana i don't know where this stands i don't know where this sits how does this ring for i'll, I'll start with courtney and then i'll go to matt courtney how does this mm-hmm. is, is this something that's been discussed or is it sort of on an outlier at the so you asked if it's a game changer for some groups it's it's a non-starter from from my perspective and our perspective, it's it's also a betrayal of the people. The majority of Coloradans who voted for Prop 114 and the intent of the proposition itself. So we also believe it's illegal and against the current law is written and intended. So, you know, wolves do not recognize state lines as we know, and we must do everything to prevent the war being waged on wolves. Out, you know, that's being waged outside of Colorado's borders from creeping in. We know, uh, and when I say no, there's scientific studies that uh, support the notion that uh, when you liberalize killing, you're increasing, um, you know, poaching and illegal killing. And so that is the floodgate that becomes opened when you try to accommodate a special interest, which is what this is. You know, phase four, while discussed in the SAG, was not endorsed, nor was there consensus. So it does not have a place. In the, in the draft management plan or the final plan. And nevertheless, you know, CPW contemplates a state delisting and uh, recreational hunting without any scientific justification. And, you know, we must keep recreational hunting off of wolves off the table. And the electors of Colorado clearly closed that door on any public hunting of wolves by specifically designating them as non-game. So that's that's where I, I stand and that's where we sit. And uh, we do not believe it belongs in this in this management plan at all. That, that's right. This, this is one of the areas where where Colorado we set out to make Colorado not be a repeat of Montana, Idaho and Wyoming. And, and that's why Proposition 114 defined wolves as non-game. Um, and so in, in the stakeholder group, um, Colorado Parks and Wildlife asked us to have a discussion about the potential of eventually having a phase four where there's enough wolves to hunt them. And, and I think that to some extent that reflects um, a, a professional worldview centered around hunting in, in the wildlife profession. And, and I'm, I include myself in that to some degree. Um, you know, in, in those other states, I think it was probably inevitable that the only way they could conceive of having a reintroduction was so that they could eventually hunt those animals. Um, of course, that's only half the story. The other half is it was a federal action that was resisted by the states all, all along. And so, um, hunting those wolves is now uh, enshrined in popular culture in those states too. But um, Colorado is different. Colorado has much more mutualistic values towards wildlife. Uh, we've known that for a long time. Surveys have shown that Coloradans have wanted the restoration of the full suite of native carnivores uh, for many years now. Um, and uh, although we had to go to a ballot initiative to actually make it happen with wolves, um, but it was intentionally written into Prop 114 that they would be a non-game species. Um, and so to change that, um, n- normally the Parks and Wildlife Commission can change the status of any species, whether it's non-game, game, fur bearer, or something else. Um, 
but now it's written into state law that wolves are non-game. So that makes it different. Um, and anyway, the the stakeholder advisory group, we kicked it around and it, it, it was clear that all the pro-wolf members of that group did not ever want to see hunting in Colorado. Um, but the ranchers and the hunters and outfitters have, you know, tend to have a much more utilitarian view versus a mutualistic one, um, you know, and, and are more inclined to see animals as a resource to be harvested, that sort of thing. Um, they all felt strongly that eventual hunting should be on the table in some way, uh, even though currently it would be illegal. Um, so, um, but we, we felt like, you know what, there's hardly any wolves in the state right now. There's, I mean, single digit number of wolves in one small part of the state. We don't know what the future is going to look like in a decade or two or three. We don't know how many wolves are ever going to actually inhabit the state. We don't even really know whether future generations are going to want to hunt them or not. Um, and right now, just even having this discussion about hunting contributes to the polarization. It, there is no need to even talk about it right now. Um, it, it, there's no upside, there's only downsides. And, and so we agreed in the stakeholder group, we got everyone to agree to not make any decision about it now. And actually most of us wanted to not even discuss it now. Uh, and so, um, well, we would like CPW to just delete that section from the plan altogether. It, it's inevitably going to get talked about again in the future when there's a significant number of wolves. Um, but it, it's better to be talked about later rather than right now. Uh, and there's a record that we talked about it in both the technical group and the stakeholder group because those final reports are attached to the plan as appendices. So you know that'll never that record's never going to get lost. It doesn't need to be uh, maintained in chapter four, I believe it is right now. Um, so I, I really think the best thing that CPW could do right now is just delete all mention of it from chapter four and knowing that inevitably the state's going to discuss it at some point um, when there's a significant number of wolves. And trust me, it's something I, I, I do not like to bring up. I just want to make sure that we cover all the bases. So I, I appreciate you both making sure that we just, you know, talk about it just for a minute and not to give it too much uh, too much light. Well, you know, it's interesting, John, that, you know, as Proposition 114 and 107 was contemplated and all the signatures were being gathered, over 215,000 signatures and the, the process was moving along, there were some key conservation and, of course, animal welfare organizations that opposed Proposition 114 for the very fact that they believed it could be sabotaged or eventually exploited to basically grow wolves to kill them, to, to shoot them, right? right? And so, you know, um, the intent of those individuals that that instigated Proposition 114 is very clear. And of course, the, the voters of Colorado, it's very clear. And all of the public comments and sentiment that was expressed during the CPW and commission meetings was was against public hunting of and recreational hunting of wolves. So, um, I, for one, strategically think it was valuable to 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 have that opposition be seen now, um, because pushing it down the road uh, for me means that um, you know it's going to come up again. It's 
probably maybe going to be shoved under the rug and, uh, you know, somehow uh, codified without adequate, you know, uh, attention from the public. So I, for one, believed we needed to address the public hunting that was, was, that was gaining some credibility and gaining some momentum. Uh, so I just wanted to add that. No, that's great. Thank you, Courtney, for, for writing that. When we, when we wrap up here really quick, I just uh, want to get both of your takes. Now that the, the, the draft is out there, people can look at it. And those of you that are listening, we will have the link to the draft plan so you, you can all take a look at it. I know, as Courtney said, it's almost 300 pages. But, you know, really take the time to look through this draft plan so you can see what the deal is. I want to go to both of you um, really quick before I ask my last question. But um, I'll start with Courtney. What's something that people should, if they're going to be making public comment, and I'll, Matt, it's the same question for you, what's something that you that you personally think that they should look for and how should they really be going at making their public comment and, and really forming something for discussion on their end as they approach this moving forward? It's tough because if you ask me as the advocate, um, I will say focus on those areas where you feel betrayed or where uh, you feel the Proposition 114 is betrayed or not adequately addressed. And it doesn't matter what that is. The organizational side of me and the strategic side of me says focus on those areas where you have the most chance of success knowing that this plan may or may not be a negotiating tool <laughs> for CPW. And so to focus on um, areas where science uh, might help us in advocating for, let's say, higher recovery criteria, higher numbers for delisting or rec recovery criteria um, and being realistic about it. So, you know, I also know that the plan has some major gaps. So for me, I'm focusing on animal welfare. You know, we'd like to include something about animal welfare in the section where they talk about capture and assessment of wolves for suitability for translocation. The plan completely dismisses the welfare and value of individual wolves if injured and treats them as expendable by mandating that all wolves that are injured during the process should be humanely euthanized. And actually, I was very much encouraged by one of the commissioners, uh, Dallas May, who is a rancher, by the way, who recommended that any of the wolves injured during this process will be considered for possible rehabilitation uh, and permanent uh, retirement or recovery in a wolf sanctuary for long-term care. So capturing 12 to 15 wolves annually by trapping, darting, netting, there's gonna be injuries. And considering the methods used to capture wolves for relocation and considering the quick turnaround for a hard release uh, into Colorado rather than a soft release, you know, it's it. That's a gap, right? That's a gap. And if if restoration is dependent upon every individual wolf that makes it into Colorado, uh, whether flown, driven, or or however captured for the Northern Rocky Mountains, um, that's a gap for me. So so I know it's a long answer, but um, I I and I'm not sure I adequately answered it because uh, <laughs> it depends on who you are. And and I say go for go for where your uh, your intuition tells you that this plan needs to be strengthened. No, it's it's great, Matt. What do you, what do you think if you were to give advice there? Um, yeah, uh, my my answer is going to overlap quite a bit with that. I would focus on those areas that you either view as inconsistent with the intent of Prop One Fourteen or inconsistent with the best available science, which Prop One Fourteen, by the way, does require the use of the best available science. Um, 
or uh, th those things that don't quite align with the stakeholder advisory group or technical working group recommendations. So most of the plan does align with those recommendations, but there are a few cases where it's slightly different. Um, and for example, I, I would argue up and down that, um, you know, lethal control should not be the first line of defense that um, non-lethal tools should be explored and encouraged before the use of mm -hmm. lethal. That's something that the entire SAG had consensus on, and that should be really explicit in chapter five, where the plan talks about impact-based management. Um, and, and then that should be built out in chapter six in, uh, in the conflict minimization or prevention plan. Um, that that right there is the core of coexistence, and right now it's only about a page long. Uh, it should pro that should be an entire chapter right there, um, and and so I would look for things like that that um, may not be obvious because there's something that's just missing, um, or or something that is um, maybe not quite um, what the stakeholders agreed to, or or most importantly, if if something is either unscientific or at odds with the intent of Prop 114. Well, and I would add, it's focused on phase four and recreational, hunt, recreational hunting and making sure that that's eliminated from, from the plan. If there's any one thing that folks that don't want to dig into the SAG recommendations or dig into the minutia of the plan, they should focus on that. Since I've already asked, asked Matt this question, since he's been on the uh, podcast, Courtney, I'll ask you the last question I ask all of our guests is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Wild. Uh, family. Potential. Possibility. Hope. That's not one word, is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we meant anyway. Yeah, we meant whatever yeah. comes up. <laughs> exactly, whatever comes up. Uh, Y'all, we did it uh, almost 90 minutes. So thank you, Matt. That was a good one. Matt Barnes and, and Courtney Vale for making the time, for really spending uh, your Friday with us and, and making sure that the information gets out there where people should look for this. Again, those of you that are listening, go to the description. All of the links that Matt has sent me, Courtney has sent us, uh, and the plan where to find the public hearings, all that will be in the description. It's going to be a long one, but it's vitally important. So Matt Barnes, Courtney Vale, thank you both so much for, for hanging with Stephen and I. And Yeah, thank you very much. Thank all you, right. guys. Yeah, thanks, right. John, Stephen, and, and thanks for the work you do at Wolf Connection. Appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Uh, how's to you all out there, and we'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information. <laughs>